Hello, this is Darren Pulsifer, Chief Solution Architect of Public Sector at Intel. And welcome to Embracing Digital Transformation, where we investigate effective change leveraging people, process, and technology. On today's episode of Fighting the Cyber Adversary by Securing Your Software Supply Chain with special guest Eric Greenwall, General Counsel of Finite State. Eric, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. Eric Greenwall is General Counsel of the Finite State, and uh, we just talked a couple weeks ago for the first time. I was very fascinated about uh, your background and Finite State and what they're doing. So Eric, tell, tell my audience a little bit about your, yourself. Well, for the last seven years or so, I've been working in the private sector uh, as a lawyer for cybersecurity companies, mm-hmm. uh, focusing on uh, security testing and identifying vulnerabilities. Right now, the work I'm doing with Finite State, the Finite State is a company that focuses on uh, embedded software, uh, mostly in industrial uh, IoT devices, uh, but also you know, medical devices, automobiles, consumer electronics, uh, trying to help identify um, vulnerabilities that are, exist in the firmware most often uh, with software that's been brought into the, into, the, into the code through third parties that may already have existing vulnerabilities that people didn't even know existed uh, uh, when, they, when they folded it into their device. But prior to that, uh, I was working in government, focusing on cybersecurity and national security. Um, I've spent time working as a lawyer for FBI, for CIA. I spent about five years on Capitol Hill as the chief counsel for the House Intelligence Committee. Uh, and then after that, I actually went back into the executive branch, I was working at Cyber Command as the deputy director for operations there, uh, and then at FBI's National Cyber Investigative Joint Task Force, where I was the uh, principal deputy director. Uh, and then my last government job was at the White House, where I was uh, senior director for cybersecurity on the National Security Council staff. All right. So you've seen some pretty scary stuff. Then. Let's just I've say scary stuff. Yes. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, you're, yeah. Right, you're right. The tip of the spear there. Um, yeah. So, I mean, why, why do you think we're seeing such a emphasis now on secure supply chain where we really haven't before and specifically software secure supply chain? Uh, why, why do you think that is? Why, why is that such a hot topic right now? I, well, I think it's it, it, a little bit uh, is that the threat has evolved. Uh, and, uh, but I want to emphasize a little bit and I'll get to what, what else is going on. I think, uh, you know, I think that, um, the increasingly complex nature of software, the fact that software is composed of so many different elements that are from so many different software designers from open source code, uh, and the fact that so many of those components, uh, have vulnerabilities, uh, sometimes when they're first created and other times, uh, discovered over time, uh, is, uh, making it more difficult to secure devices uh, that are built through that software supply chain. I think that what's also happening and maybe a larger part of, of the, why we're seeing this recent emphasis on supply chain cybersecurity uh, is we've seen some recent attacks. SolarWinds is, is certainly the best example where the supply chain was used uh, to uh, affect a really uh, dangerous and impactful attack, uh, affecting a lot of different systems in a way that was not observed for for a, you know, a good long period of time. And people are waking up 
I, it's a combination of people are waking up and actors are becoming more sophisticated about the ways that they are exploiting uh, the supply chain. Um, but uh, you know, a lot of what we're seeing is not new exactly. Uh, it's just that people are becoming more aware of the danger. Yeah, I, I think the news helps with that, right? I mean, when you see it on the news. Also, I've noticed the patience of the attackers has, I mean, the solar winds attack was a very patient, yeah. well thought out attack. It wasn't like, oh, I got in and caused havoc. It was, I got in and sat on it for a year, year and a half. And, and that is probably the most significant difference between an attack that a nation state might carry out as opposed to a criminal. Criminal organizations have demonstrated pretty decent patience themselves in a number of sophisticated attacks, uh, but they don't have the, anywhere near the same kind of patience as nation states where they're not looking, strictly speaking, for a return on investment or financial return on investment. Right. They're looking for an intelligence gain and their masters are patient and willing to let them take years uh, to wow. develop their intelligence access. And then once they obtain the access to cultivate uh, the, the intelligence sources, the information that they're looking for. Um, and, and they're well-resourced, uh, both in terms of uh, the money and expertise. Uh, so it's, but yeah, there's no question that um, when you have an attacker who is patient, who is well-resourced, who is sophisticated, they are much better positioned to take devastating advantage of supply chain complexity, as we saw with the solar winds attack. So what, what kinds of regulations are coming up or that companies need to be concerned about or how do they manage? Because obviously we've, we've got to do a better job as an industry and there are some regulations that have come out or some executive orders and things. So what should, if I'm a, if I'm a software developer or I have a product out there, what should I, where should I be looking and what should I focus on? Yeah, so there's there's a lot out there. There's a lot that's going on. I think where it's probably uh, easiest to focus attention is on Executive Order 14028, uh, which the Biden administration put forward almost exactly, oh, I guess a little bit over a year ago. I think yeah. it was May 12th of last year. Um, and you know, there's a lot, there's a lot in that executive order, but I can sort of distill the focus into two main points. One is secure software development, and there's uh, a lot of work that's being done to try to uh, come up with technical recommendations for how uh, companies, uh, and, and to be clear, this the executive order is directed only at government uh, procurement. So it's only software companies that are selling to the government. But I'll talk a bit more about that in a moment. Uh, so uh, where companies that are, are building software products for the government uh, uh, can uh, implement secure software practices to try to make their products uh, that they're selling to the government more secure uh, from day one. Uh, there, there is a component of that that's worth singling out uh, and that is the Software Bill of Materials. And this is something that uh, has been around for a number of years. I think, I think the first draft legislation proposing uh, the uh, Software Bill of Materials or SBOM as a requirement came out in 2014. Uh, and it's been getting uh, you know, more attention over time. Uh, and the standards for producing SBOMs have become more mature, more developed. Uh, and uh, you know, we're starting to see greater adoption of the SBOM outside of the government regulatory space. But EO 1428 uh, specifically would require uh, 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 suppliers 
to government of software products to have an SBOM uh, for the software that they're selling. Now, the exact scope is uh, a technical question that they're still working out and it's supposed to expand over time. But uh, the general idea is that there would be a requirement for an SBOM. Uh, so let me say a quick word about the SBOM and then a little bit about what's happening more broadly with that that goes well beyond the scope of Executive Order 14028. Um, what the SBOM does is it's essentially a list of ingredients uh, for, a, uh, for a software product, uh, not completely different from the way you see a list of ingredients on food products. Uh, but in this case, instead of, uh, you know, wheat and soy uh, and, you know, what color dye goes into it, uh, you're, you're looking at the, uh, the, the software components. And this goes back to the comment I was making earlier about the complexity of the supply chain and the fact that for any given software product, you've got all these different software components that the manufacturer didn't write, that they've borrowed or licensed uh, from, from other sources, including open source. Uh, and the software bill of materials would force the, the manufacturer of the device to list all of those different components. Uh, and, and the reason why this is really important is number one, provide some transparency into the supply chain so that when I buy a software product, I can look at the SBOM and say, ah, here are all the different software components that I'm buying when I integrate or that I'm bringing into my network when I integrate this software, this device into my stack. Now, wait just a second there. Why is that important? For, for precisely the reason I was stating earlier that whenever a developer, uh, you know, open source or, or proprietary puts together a, a code or a, a set of code or a library, uh, there may be vulnerabilities associated with that. And again, they may be vulnerabilities that are there day one or vulnerabilities that are discovered later. So that if, for example, uh, Log4j is probably- I was going to bring up, yeah, Log4j. Yeah, everyone is, used it. Major yeah. vulnerability. Yes, but but most people didn't know whether they had it in their components, in their stack at all, much less in which components. And this is where an SBOM is particularly valuable. So if if we if Log4j happened in a world where SBOMs were regularly produced and, and provided to consumers of software and code, uh, uh, software and, and, and hardware. Uh, then the owner of the devices of the code would have been able, when the log4j vulnerability was revealed, would have been able to look yeah. at their SBOM inventory and say, do I have log4j as a component of any device or uh, you know, a piece of my, my, my network? Uh, and I don't, I don't want to say that it would have been like waving a magic wand, but it would, it would have been, been a lot easier though, right? It, it would have made it a lot easier for companies to discover, do I even have Log4j anywhere in my system? And if I do, where do I need to go to implement a patch or to isolate the system so that it's not vulnerable to an attack while I wait for uh, an effective patch? Um, and uh, so uh, that, that's, that is, the, the, an excellent demonstration of why SBOMs are very important. You have these complex supply chains, you have all these different components, you have limited awareness uh, by the owners of those, of, the, of those devices of the software, whether uh, any particular component is present uh, in what they've acquired. Uh, and, and so 
when you learn of a new vulnerability, the mere act of trying to figure out whether that vulnerability affects your system, and if so, where, uh, is very, very challenging. And if there are, if, if we do see wide adoption of S-bombs, um, that will become less challenging. I don't want to pretend that it will become easy suddenly. Uh, no, I, I've heard people, we've, uh, I'm, I'm working in a standards group right now that's talking about S-bombs and, and things like that. And there was a, a, a really good argument that came up. If I'm publishing my S-bombs, aren't I just publishing where my vulnerabilities potentially are? Yeah, and there, there are definitely, it's, it's, there are some people who are concerned about uh, providing a roadmap to attackers. And yeah. others who are who are concerned about providing proprietary information, you know, the, that the S bomb contains secret sauce that they don't that they don't want to reveal. I, you know, I think for the most part the S bomb is at a level of detail where it's not really going to provide that kind of proprietary information. But that's that's I, I think that's a debate and discussion that you know needs to be had among among uh, a lot of different stakeholders to figure out. Okay, what you know is this a genuine concern? How can we mitigate it? The roadmap for attackers, I'm a little bit more clear on. Uh, and is there a concern uh, that attackers may know is used, uh, is present in software and code that is used in automobiles, but they might not know, okay, which cars have this? And if they go to an SBOM library, they might be able to say, oh, it's in Audis, it's in BWs, it's in Fords, and focus their attack more narrowly. That that's I think that that's a legitimate concern. But what uh, you know what? Certainly, what the uh, what the C Commerce Department and DHS have been saying is that there's much greater benefit to defenders in having that transparency than there is advantage given to attackers by having the roadmap uh, that an S bomb would provide. Yeah, I, I agree with you there uh, too. And and but those debates will go on. And in the private sector, you're going to see. Well, maybe I don't want to do that, but maybe we have special spices right on the ingredients yes I, I i don't know what else to do but uh we, we've even talked about maybe if i'm consuming um software from someone else i could set up a secure contract with them so, and my and the s-bomb would be in that contract yeah. so only i could see because i'm receiving i am buying that then only i could see um what version they have and so there could be ways to protect myself um, yeah. more readily, but yeah, the, and and this is I think it's a misconception that that uh, opponents of S bombs have, and that is that oh, if you're if you're being required to make an S bomb, you're being required to publish an S bomb, and while there That's are not people, true, right? There are people who advocate having publicly available libraries of, of S-bombs. That is not where we are likely to end up. Uh, I, I would I say agree. we're not going to end up there. Uh, and yes, you know, it is the, the makers of devices are going to be able to exert some control over who is able to access their S-bomb. Now, the reality is once you create an S-bomb and you disseminate it to some people, whether it's you know the, the people who own your devices or who are looking to buy your devices, you start to lose your ability to exert total control. And so there's a greater risk that that will make it out you know, into the hands of malicious actors. Well, I was actually thinking about that. And, and we've got technology um, to create non-fungible oh. contracts. So they can't be copied. And that would be a really interesting way to go. Yeah. Right. I mean, no one's going to sit there and read these S-bombs. We already know that, right? Yeah. They're yeah. going to be machine re read. They're going to be yeah. checked against um, 
um, vulnerability um, scans and thing and you know things like that. So it, it is. It's absolutely true. There are ways to try to reduce the risk that s bombs will fall into the wrong hands. But there's another important point to uh, uh, be aware of, and that is the s bomb. Uh, for any software or device that is available in the marketplace, the SBOM uh, is, is information that anybody who has the time and the tools to get unpack anyway. and reverse engineer yeah. uh, that, that device, that code is capable of producing. It would take them some time. It would take them some effort. Uh, and certainly if they have you know, thousands of SBOMs in front of them uh, and they want to just go find, okay, which one has... Uh, this particular piece of software with this vulnerability, that's easier for them. But uh, for any individual device or uh, set of code, it is possible for an attacker to take that, do the reverse engineering and generate the exact same information uh, that is uh, uh, would otherwise be available in an S-bomb. Yeah, yeah no, I, I hear you. So yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting argument. You said there were two things. The first was S-bombs. What's the next? Oh, so they, they actually, the first one was secure software development. And the, oh, second, the, the, and the, the, and the second, which right. is sort of a subcomponent, is, is S-bomb. But I, I, did, I did mention that I was going to uh, talk about how S-bombs are becoming uh, a force to be reckoned with even outside of the scope of the executive order. Yeah. Uh, because as I said, the executive order is limited to uh, in its application to government procurement of software. Uh, but as I also mentioned, SBOM, uh, the SBOM concept is something that's been uh, in existence and development for a number of years. And there are a number of companies that already use it. What you're starting to see is a greater awareness of uh, the existence of SBOM and the utility of having an SBOM in providing transparency into supply chain security considerations. Um, and so we're, we're starting to see wider adoption of SBOM as a requirement uh, in the procurement process, in the private sector procurement process. You know, show me an SBOM. I, I want to see the SBOM before I buy this product. Um, or I want to be able to have an SBOM once I've purchased this product. Uh, so I, I think that you're starting to see private companies, uh, you know, adopt and expand the concept of the SBOM uh, in ways that are completely independent of what's happening in the government. Now, I think that as you start to see the government adopt uh, more, uh, lean more in the direction of requiring SBOMs, that's only going to accelerate the, uh, the adoption of SBOM among private sector parties. And it's worth noting that there's now three different pieces of legislation on Capitol Hill draft uh, that would require medical device manufacturers uh, to produce S-bombs, uh, you know, as part of the FDA approval process. Um, and, uh, you know, these, the, it's draft legislation, uh, no idea whether it's actually going to uh, make it into law, but the fact that you're starting to see, uh, including, uh, I mentioned three pieces, two of them, one is a House and Companion Senate bills, uh, both of which are bipartisan draft bills. Uh, so the fact that you are seeing uh, bipartisan, bicameral legislation uh, that would, if adopted, require medical device manufacturers to uh, provide S-bombs for their devices is a clear indication uh, of the direction in which we're going. How fast we get there, or go in that direction, a separate question, but, uh, and whether the private sector just pushes, in, pushes itself there first, 
um, before Congress uh, passes a law. Well, that would uh, be best, right? I yeah. mean, it's best if the industry does it, right? Instead of uh, Congress and big, you know, granted Congress is trying their best, but they really don't understand the complexity of the situation. That's right. That's right. It, it's also worth noting that part of the reason why we're seeing those bills on Capitol Hill is because the FDA itself has issued some recommendations for uh, for medical device manufacturers suggesting that they incorporate SBOMs as part of their uh, part of the review process for medical uh, medical device approval, and if the FDA is recommending that, uh, yeah. then you know I think that you know it's the medical device manufacturing community. I think recognizes well, we probably shouldn't show up for a review of a medical device without <laughs> without one. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, so even though it's not required, um, so yeah, I, I think that this is something that is gaining momentum. The S-bomb is gaining momentum. The transparency, the importance of transparency is gaining recognition as a critical part of supply chain cybersecurity. All right. So this is really interesting. Um, and almost, and it's a sweet spot for a finite state, right? Yes. We're starting to see um, the physical world being affected by software in a big way. Medical devices, other embedded systems like control systems for power plants, HVAC systems. Um, I was on um, a conference call with um, Pearson Airport in Toronto mm. and fascinate, oh, it, it blew my mind what he has to deal with as far as embedded systems, controlling the lights, the baggage, the, um, you know, all this stuff. So to me, this is probably the most critical aspect. I mean, so what if my email doesn't work? But it's a whole different story if I'm stuck in an elevator. Uh, yeah, you're absolutely right. And actually, you know, the Colonial Pipeline attack provides an interesting. Uh, oh yeah, that's a good a way to look at it. You know, the 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 Colonial Pipeline attack itself was on Colonial Pipeline's business systems, not on their operational systems. Uh, but because they were number one worried about the possibility that the attack had had filtered over to their operational systems. And number two, because since their business systems were offline, they couldn't keep track of the you know, flow of gas and actually bill people. <laughs> uh, they, they shut their entire operational system down while they stopped to figure out what they needed to do. Um, and yeah, so the point is, hey, yes, you attack the business system, that's one thing. The operational system uh, is is another another thing entirely has much greater consequences. Even though the two are interconnected and an attack on one can affect the other, but you're you know I I, I take your point and and I couldn't agree more that when you start talking about those operational systems and the vulnerabilities that exist within them, uh, the fact that far too many of them are directly connected to the internet uh, or don't have appropriate firewalls segregating traffic um, that would protect provide greater protection. Uh, uh, the the worry when you think about uh, the complexity of the supply chain, the fact that so many of these industrial operational components are much, much older uh, and have yeah. not necessarily been updated because updating uh, an operational system can either require that you take it offline or runs the risk uh, that you're actually going to break something in the, in the process of trying to update it, that uh, people are very reluctant to do that. A lot of the OT systems, the operational technology systems, right? They don't want to connect to the internet because, hey, that's how hackers get in. So this is almost a double-edged sword. I've got very old software that might have vulnerabilities in it that could trigger based off of time. I mean, you don't have to be connected. Right. They could have put something in there that, hey, on this day, on this time, 
um, this piece of software implodes and brings everything down, we, I, you don't even have to be connected to the internet for that attack to happen. Right. But, so there's this, there's this quandary, right, for a lot of OT professionals. What do I do? I don't want to connect it to the internet to get auto updates because that's scarier than no, yes. you know, crazy. Yeah. So what do we, what do you do? I mean, give, give me some help. I need help. Help me, help me. Well, the, I, you know, the, what, what uh, I think probably what is the best thing to do is to try to gain that transparency into the components that are, that are in your stack uh, to scan the system, scan the devices that are part of your OT network uh, and, and do some you know, reverse engineering decompiling that gives you the ability to understand what components you've got in there, uh, essentially creating, creating your own SBOM, um, and then being able to assess for those various components, are there vulnerabilities that need to be addressed that have not been addressed? Uh, and you know, are there, for example, uh, hard-coded credentials in, in the system? It's, it's startling how frequent it happens, frequently it happens, that you have, uh, you know, developer of a, of a software product uh, is, you know, setting up some very nice and tidy encryption to protect the system, but then leaves in the code hard-coded credentials that enable anybody who can well, decompile yeah, code. Well, yeah, I'm a programmer. Know. I do that all the time. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I need uh, a backdoor. I need a backdoor in there to fix things, right? Because they're yes. always calling me and saying, hey, can you, you know, get into the system and fix it, please? And so you leave that open. I mean, this this is a common problem. It's not malicious uh, per se, but you know. So this is this is the primary area of work for finite state uh, is looking looking at these systems, looking at the devices. You know, uh, doing an analysis. We have a platform that automates the analysis uh, of of the code, embedded code, uh, and provides a readout of. Uh, you know, the vulnerabilities that are present in the system and, you know, also does uh, a, a complicated job of trying to identify the highest priority vulnerabilities because you can have, uh, you know, a, an analysis of a device come back with thousands of vulnerabilities, but there are ways to group them. There are ways to rank them uh, according, according to risk, according to impact, according to how easy uh, it is to knock out a whole category of vulnerabilities with a single fix. Uh, and, uh, you know, to help, um, uh, you know, the, the security folks, security teams uh, ha make their job a lot easier as they try to address the vulnerabilities uh, that, they, that, that they discover in the systems. Okay, so having an S-bomb like that by itself is not good enough is what I just heard. I need to tie it into a risk management system because as you said, I, I can imagine the vulnerabilities they find, right? It's going to find tons of vulnerabilities. So we, we got to figure, we got to figure that out. Right. Um, so that's where risk mitigation and saying, Hey, what's the risk of this happening? The impact, all, all those aspects of a normal risk management um, system have a big uh, role in this as well. That's right. Yeah. As, as you know, cybersecurity uh, services have improved uh, we've developed a, an acute signal to noise ratio problem because uh, you know when you when you pick up any system um, and look at the vulnerabilities, you can find so many different ways that an attacker can exploit it. Uh, and figuring out you know which which ones are actually the highest priority is a complicated process 
and and so that's that's something that, uh, in addition to trying to divine what vulnerabilities are present, uh, Finance State is also working to try to uh, help those uh, security teams uh, prioritize, do their risk assessment, and prioritize the actions that they need to take first uh, with respect to protecting their systems. Uh, Eric, Eric, this has been uh, very informative today. A little bit scary. I'm not going to say that it wasn't. <laughs> But anytime I talk to you guys, you security guys, I, you know, I'm always like, oh, I got to lock down my home network better. I got to do all this stuff to protect myself. The way I would put it is if you're having a conversation about cybersecurity and you're not at least a little bit scared, you're not really paying attention. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Hey, Eric, thanks for coming on the show today. You bet. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. Thank you for listening to Embracing Digital Transformation today. If you enjoyed our podcast, give it five stars on your favorite podcasting site or YouTube channel. You can find out more information about Embracing Digital Transformation at embracingdigital.org. Until next time, go out and do something wonderful.